We turn in the Holy Scriptures to Proverbs chapter 30. We will begin our reading at verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter. The text will be verse 28. This is the word of God beginning at Proverbs 30 verse 18. There be three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, four, which I know not. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent upon a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth, and saith, I have done no wickedness. For three things the earth is disquieted, and for four, which it cannot bear. For a servant, when he reigneth, and a fool, when he is filled with meat. For an odious woman, when she is married, and an handmaid, that is heir to her mistress. There be four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceeding wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. The conies are but a feeble folk, yet make they their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet go they forth, all of them, by bands. The spider taketh hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. There be three things which go well, yea, four are comely in going. A lion which is strongest among beasts and turneth not away for any, a greyhound, an he-goat also, and a king, against whom there is no rising up. For if, if thou hast done foolishly in lifting up thyself, or if thou hast thought evil, lay thine hand upon thy mouth. Surely the churning of milk bringeth forth butter, and the wringing of the nose bringeth forth blood, so the forcing of wrath bringeth forth strife. We end our reading at this point. Text is verse 28. The spider taketh hold with her hands, and is in king's palaces. We come to the conclusion of our very short series on three things that, rather four things, which are little upon the earth, yet have been made by God in their own way to be exceeding wise. Tonight, as we come to the fourth, we come to the creature that is the most challenging to understand, or to put it better, the text of these four Verses that is the most challenging to interpret. The reason being is that not only must we discern, discover the wisdom that God would have us to learn from the little creature in our text, but we first have to identify exactly what animal Proverbs 30 verse 28 is referring to. Unlike the preceding three, There is some uncertainty about this one. Even though, for example, the conies are an animal we're not familiar with, we can easily identify what that animal is. But in verse 28, the word which the King James renders spider 
is a very obscure word. It is only used in this one passage in all of the scriptures. There is some challenge identifying what exactly it means. As has already been said in the course of our series, the scriptures are clear. The scriptures are not an obscure book. The message of the gospel in the scripture is clear. Yet, that doesn't take away from the fact that there are some passages of Scripture that are a little more difficult than others, and that's by the Holy Spirit's design. When we come across a difficult passage, the Holy Spirit forces us to dig deeper, to not be satisfied with a surface reading of the text, but to explore it and to study it. And these four Proverbs we have looked at have done this already, and we're going to do it again this one last time with the fourth Creature that is little, yet exceeding wise. We've studied the ant at our feet, learned wisdom from it, diligence, industry, provision for our future, both earthly and spiritually. We've considered the conies housed in the rocky country around Jerusalem and learned the wisdom of the conies that we are to take refuge in the rock that is Jesus Christ, especially in the clefts of that rock, his wounds, which are our salvation. We've learned from the locust as we've observed them riding in on the east wind. We've observed the orderliness of their march as they devour all that is before them. And we've learned the lesson from them that the church of Jesus Christ too is to function as an orderly army in the midst of this this world. Now we come to the last one. And Agur takes us from the outdoors now inside into no less than Solomon's palace itself. To show us a little creature. Although this little creature isn't wanted there. It's there. It's living there. And you can't stop it from living there. In the Hebrew. It's called the Semimith. At the beginning of the sermon. We're going to look at what this thing is. And identify what the creature is being talked about here. So that's the theme. The Semimith in King's Palaces. We're going to answer first the question, what is it? And then we will look at its significance, what its significance is for us. The text reads, The spider taketh hold with her hands and is in King's Palaces. Spider, in our King James Version, is a translation of that obscure Hebrew word, Semimith. What is Is it? Lots of different interpretations of this word have been put forth. Some of them are very far-fetched. You will find some interpreters that suggest the creature in this text is an ape. After all, we know from 1 Kings 10 verse 22 that Solomon received apes as a gift from the king of Tarshish. Others have suggested it's a bird. But really, there are only two reasonable possibilities. The one that the King James translators chose, spider, and the second being a small lizard. Both of these creatures, the spider and a lizard, are mentioned in the scriptures a couple of times. We read of a spider 
twice in the Bible. The first being in Job 8, verse 14, where we read, Whose hope, that is the hope of ungodly men, shall be cut off, and whose trust shall be a spider's web. The point being that the sinner's hope is full of holes, and it will turn out to be a snare unto him. There is no hope apart from faith in the one true and living God. Second passage in the Bible where we read of the spider is in Isaiah, Isaiah 59, verse 5. Here, God describes the wickedness of Judah this way. They hatch cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. That's perhaps the outstanding feature of the spider is its amazing ability to spin a web from within its own body. And that web serves as a trap in which it ensnares its prey. And the people of Judah were spinning webs of deceit to snare their neighbors. It's a description of the wickedness of the people of Judah. But in these two passages, we have a different word than the one we find in our text. In those two other passages, you have the regular word for spider, but it's not the word of Proverbs 30, verse 28, Semimith. The Bible also speaks of Lizards, one place is Leviticus 11 verse 30, which lists several different kinds of lizards as unclean animals, which the children of Israel were not allowed to eat. And the ferret, and the chameleon, and the lizard, and the snail, and the mole. But here too, we don't find the word in our text. And so what this shows us is we can't settle the interpretive question merely by looking at the word itself. We're going to have to look Deeper. So what do we have here? Spider or a lizard? What we have to understand is that in a text like this, there is a measure of exegetical freedom. A case can be made in either direction. And whichever direction you go is not going to radically change the teaching of the text or lead you into doctrinal error. There is a sort of exegetical freedom here. And therefore, there can be profit in applying the text in both directions. But in this sermon, I'm going to interpret this creature, Semimith, as a lizard rather than a spider. And I do this because I believe that interpretation is supported by the best evidence both in the text as well as secondary evidence. And so, to show how we get to that identification of this creature, let's look at a couple pieces of evidence for that interpretation. A lizard, rather than a spider. Why? Well, the main piece of evidence here has to do with the grammar of the first half of Proverbs 30, verse 28. We're going to have to refresh ourselves in a little grammar here. The spider, or semimith, taketh hold with her hands. Here, in the King James translation, spider is the noun, which is the subject of that verb, taketh hold. And that Hebrew verb, taketh hold, means to grasp or to catch something. But now, remember, when you have a, when you have a verb... You can speak in first person, I catch, or second person, you catch, or third person, he, she, it catches. 
And here in our text, the Hebrew verb take hold is in the second person, not the third person. And so a literal rendering of the text would be this. The spider or the semimith you catch in the hands. The idea is not that this creature, whatever it is, catches something or takes hold of something with its hands, but rather it is something you can catch with your hands. Now, you could see that applying both to a spider or to a lizard, but I dare say there aren't many of us here that go around our houses sticking our hands in spider webs trying to get a hold of that spider and hold it in our hands. And there likely weren't many, too, many people back then who did that either. It fits much better with the lizard, the kind of little lizards that were very commonplace in Palestine then and yet today. For us who aren't familiar with creatures like that, we're probably thinking, I wouldn't grab that with my hand either. But people who are used to these things, these lizards, they were commonplace, would do that. They would grab them. They could catch them with their hand. And so the language, the grammar of the text fits much better with a lizard. The lizard you catch in the hands, yet it is in King's palaces. But now there's a second piece of evidence that supports this first and main piece of evidence. And the second piece of evidence comes from a very important Bible translation and a very ancient one. It's the Bible translation called the Septuagint. Now if you haven't heard of the Septuagint, it is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. It's the translation that was used by the Jews of the dispersion, that is, those Jews living outside of Palestine, for whom Greek had become their native tongue. They needed a translation of the Bible, just like we need an English translation of the Bible. And the Septuagint was their translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. The word Septuagint is from the Latin 70, and this translation got that name because allegedly 70 Jewish scholars produced this translation of the Old Testament scriptures, and it was in use before the birth of Christ. The Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is a very important translation because it was the Bible that was used by the Gentile New Testament church, the Greek-speaking church. When Paul went on his missionary journeys and he read or preached from the Old Testament, most likely he used this translation of the Scriptures. God used this translation to make the Old Testament available to the early Gentile churches that didn't have knowledge of Hebrew. But now, back to the point. Back to the point. This Septuagint translation, which we can read, you can get it like any other translation, like our King James or another English translation, The Septuagint was translated by Jews who knew their Hebrew. And so we can look at the word they picked in translating our text to gain some insight into what this creature is. And if you read the Septuagint, what you will find is that the Hebrew translators used the Greek word not for spider, but for spotted lizard. 
And so it's on the basis of these two pieces of evidence that I'm going in this direction in the sermon. And we've identified now this mysterious creature of the text, the Semimith, as a little spotted lizard. Now, before we go on to apply the text, let's do what we've done with the other creatures that we've looked at in this series and observe some of the characteristics of this little lizard. The spotted lizard is kind of like a gecko. It's a little lizard three to five inches long, tan in color with black spots, and it had sticky fanned feet, which allowed it to climb up walls, even sheer vertical walls. It was a very mobile and agile creature. The species referred to here in our text is likely what is known today as the Turkish gecko, also known as the house gecko. And it's called the house gecko because this little lizard has an affinity for making its home in human houses. This little house gecko finds its way into the dwelling places of humans, whatever way can be found, and it's a persistent little creature. And there it lives in the crevices, or in a dark corner, or even in the walls of that house, and it feeds upon the insects that can be found in the house. And that fits perfectly well with the text, does it not? In king's palaces, this little creature finds its way in. Not only the humblest cottage of the peasantry and the common people, but it finds its way even into the grandest house of a king, a palace. It is in king's palaces. This little house gecko, this lizard, like the creatures before it, is very small. And yet, the text says, according to verse 24, it is exceeding wise. God has inscribed something upon its nature that we can learn from. It shows us wisdom. And just like with the locust, the text here describes this little lizard's wisdom by means of two seemingly contrary statements, which are the two parts of the proverb. The lizard you can catch with your hands, is our literal translation of the text, that's the first part, yet it is in king's palaces. And those two seem to conflict with each other. It's this little weak creature, you can catch it and hold it in your hands. Sure, it's a quick little creature. It can be a little bit challenging to grab hold of, but you can do it. You can catch this little thing, and you can hold it. And if you want to, you can crush it in your hand. It's a tiny, weak, little animal. And yet, it still finds a way to make its home in human houses, in the king's palace, despite every effort of man to keep it out of their dwelling places. It finds a way. It's even in the king's palace, and that's striking. There's no house more well guarded than the king's palace. No man can just walk into the king's palace. If you want to take hold of the palace of a king, you need an army 
to break down its walls and to capture it. And yet, a little lizard that you can catch with your hands is in. It's there, and you can't keep it out. It's in man's house, in the king's palace. That's the wisdom of this little lizard. It's small and weak. You can catch it with the hand, yet it's in the palace. What is its significance for us? What wisdom, what gospel wisdom can we glean from the little creature, this little spotted lizard described by Agur in our text? By now, we know very well to look past appearances. What could we learn from an ant? What could we learn from a coney? What could we learn from a locust? These small creatures that man despises as pests or vermin. We've seen how this humbles us too. That God is pleased to teach us even by these smallest of characters in the elegant book of his creation. So it is with this little lizard. This house gecko. Three things I want to point out. Three areas of significance for us where we can learn. First, the lizard's cleverness and nimbleness by which it gets itself into places where it's not wanted, but where it will abide. The lizard gets itself into the palace of the king. It gets itself into the homes of people. And it has a striking ability to overcome whatever obstacles are thrown at it. To try to keep it out. It finds a way. Whether that's a little hole in the wall that it worms its way through. Or whether it climbs the wall and enters into that window that's cracked just a little bit open. It finds a way. You can't keep it out. When I was in Singapore this past summer, I found that to be true. Little lizards. Singapore, they have small lizards much like the one described in our text. Just about this big. And you can't keep them out. You can't. Singapore is a wealthy country. When we were in Singapore, we were staying in a very nice, well-constructed high-rise. We were on the 10th floor. And still, from time to time, we would see these little lizards climb on the wall or dart across the floor. You can't keep them out. They're nimble. They're clever. They find a way in. What in the world does this have to teach the church? God inscribed this wisdom on the nature of the lizard to be in the house, to get into even the king's palace. God has given his people the commission to go and to get in to the houses of men and into the world. No, not physically, but to get in To go out and get in with that one thing that the church has to bring. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
what was Jesus' mandate to the New Testament church before he ascended into heaven? Was it not that his church was to go and bring the gospel throughout the inhabited world so that this gospel reached into the houses of men and reached even into the palaces of kings? That's the mission of the church. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Jesus Christ, who is our wisdom, gives his church the wisdom she needs To heed that commission and to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. To preach that gospel as Jesus commanded in Mark 16 verse 15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go out. Get in. And bring the good tidings of Christ And salvation. Preach that gospel. Preach it promiscuously to all men under heaven. God will use that gospel as he is pleased to use it. It is a double-edged sword. He will use it to gather his elect. He will use it to harden the reprobate. All according to his will and good pleasure. But this is the commission of the church. Go. Bring the gospel. And the world wants to keep it out. Is that not our world? Keep that gospel, keep that word away from us. Keep the church away from us. Out of our home, out of our society, out of our sight. But despite all that the world throws at the church, the gospel can never be kept out. Every man must do something. With the Christ of God. Confronted with the gospel. That calls him to faith and to repentance. He must say something to the Christ of God. He must believe that is his calling. And if he does not, he shall perish. Is this not the history of the church? Recorded in the Bible itself? We can see this Wisdom, the kind of wisdom that is shown to us by this little lizard in our proverb. We can see this wisdom working in the history of the church beginning in the very days of the apostles. The book of Acts records the rapid spread of the gospel. The gospel going out and getting into the houses of men and bringing forth God's people and gathering them into the church. Think of the gathering of the church in Jerusalem and how after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the apostles, so many were added to the church there in Jerusalem. And the enemies of God and his people said, enough, out with you. And persecution erupted. Saul was the ringleader and the church in Jerusalem was scattered. But what happened? The Christians in Jerusalem scattered abroad and they brought the gospel with them. From Jerusalem into Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Men, women, 
children were taken into the captivity of the obedience of Christ, which is the only blessed freedom there is. Philip in Samaria. Philip directed by God to that Gaza road where there providentially he met that Ethiopian eunuch returning home. There, riding in the chariot, he explained Isaiah 53 to that Ethiopian eunuch and baptized him with water and sent him on his way. And that Ethiopian eunuch with the gospel went back to the palace of Queen Candace of Ethiopia in king's palaces. You can't stop it. Peter, entering into the house of Cornelius the centurion, witnessing after he preached to them, the Holy Spirit poured out upon Cornelius and his family. The gospel could not be stopped. Think of Paul's missionary journeys. Like a lizard, clever and nimble, Paul wisely entered into cities and houses, city after city, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how hard the Jews and Gentiles tried to put an end to it. And yet all manner of persons, God's elect sheep that had wandered in darkness, elect of the Jews and elect of the Gentiles, were gathered into the church and into the saving fellowship of Jesus Christ. We read about that in Acts. Take for example, Acts 17 verse 4, describing Paul's labor in Thessalonica. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. And of the chief women, not a few. God used weakest means. Weakest means to fulfill his will. Weakest means to storm the strongholds of Satan in the world. Weakest means to bring the light of the gospel into the homes of his elect and call them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Meek or weakest means fulfill his will. It was Paul, wasn't it? He was weak. Like the lizard, small in comparison to the powerful men of the world that he boldly preached among, how easily Paul was caught with the hands, imprisoned, put in bonds, and yet that didn't stop the gospel, did it? For in his bonds, he entered king's palaces. That's the sovereignty of God. Paul's bonds got him into the palaces of kings. First Felix, and then Festus, and Agrippa, and Bernice, and then the appeal to Caesar, which put him on a ship, which eventually landed him in Rome. And there, as we read at the end of Acts, he labored for two years under house arrest, preaching the gospel in Rome. And the gospel penetrated into the very palace of Caesar himself. Paul writes from Rome in Philippians 4 verse 22. All the saints salute you. All the saints salute you, Philippians. Chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. 
the spider taketh hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. There's encouragement and instruction here for us, is there not? As we see the wisdom of this little lizard here, and we see that wisdom as it's manifest in the history of the church, God works this way yet today. He gathers His church by means of the gospel, and weakest means still fulfill His will. Encouragement. Encouragement that we need today, that the gospel triumphs, that the church militant is already now the church triumphant, though that triumph has yet to be fully realized. Despite our weakness, despite how easily we can get caught in the hands of our enemies, in the hands of sin, in the hands of persecutors, in the hands of those who hate the church and the gospel, still, the cause of Christ cannot be stopped. And no amount of opposition or persecution can keep the kingdom of God from coming. God has His people. God knows where His people are. And God will reach His people. God will protect His people. He will preserve His people. He has gathered them. They're in his hands, and none can pluck them out of his hands. Even when the hands of our enemies grasp us and hold us, we're in his hands. And the hands of the enemy can do nothing apart from what the hands of our Father enables them to do. Even bonds, we've seen that with Paul. Paul was in bonds, and yet that is precisely what God used to get him into palaces of kings, to preach the gospel. His bonds served the gospel, and so too, the persecution, the opposition, all of the might that is arrayed and deployed against the church to destroy it and to keep the gospel out. All of that is under the sovereign control of the eternal king on high. And he works all things for the good of his people. Even persecution must in the end serve the church. The ancient church father Tertullian once remarked, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. True, that is. The more the enemy rages against God's people, the more they stand fast and prosper. It's God's wisdom. Weakest beings fulfill His will. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. The church doesn't fight like the world and must not fight like the world. We don't fight in earthly battle. We don't use earthly means. We're not concerned with political power, or employing the sword to advance the causes of the gospel. No, God's ways are different. God uses weakness to magnify His power. This is the wisdom of God, which to men looks like folly, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men's wisdom, and the weakness of God far more mighty than the greatest power of man. 
That's our encouragement. Instruction too. Church, be bold in the midst of this world. Preach the truth boldly. Evangelize boldly. Do the work of missions boldly. Be in the world. Not of it, but in the world. Penetrate the houses of this world with the light of the gospel. Be salt and light in the midst of the world. Our goal isn't to transform society. We don't dream of some glorious Christian age to come. The gospel doesn't promise that. That's not our hope. That's not the purpose of the church's work. To transform the world. The purpose of the church's work is to bring the gospel that transforms the lives of God's elect people. And to herald that gospel to the ends of the earth. The lizard goes in the king's palace and it's found there. It doesn't take over the whole palace. It's there. It abides there. And so too the gospel. The church. Found everywhere. Throughout this world. Gospel that penetrates into the houses and palaces of the world. Drawing out. The people of God. So that's the first and main application. That we can draw from our text. But now secondly. There's a lesson in persistence and perseverance here. We've seen with the ant that we can learn diligence. The hard work of the ant shows us the kind of hard-working people we ought to be in things earthly as well as spiritual. Well, this little lizard in our present text shows us something about persistence and perseverance. The lizard always faced obstacles. Trying to get into that house. The people that live in that house don't want it in the house. Yet it persists. It finds a way. It perseveres. So ought the church. In the midst of this world. In the work of the Lord. And us. As individual believers. In the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord in our own vocation. Serving Him in whatever position He's given us. In the workplace, in the home. Caring for children, whatever it may be. Is work we do in the service of God. Persist and persevere in that work. With your eyes on the God you glorify. Our culture prizes instant success. Quick results. And so in our culture, it's easy to quickly abandon that which doesn't produce quick results or become discouraged. Let that not be the case for the church, for the believing child of God in the Christian life and in the work of the church. God's timing is not, off, is not always our timing. God works in ways that are often different than ours, but higher and better. The calling to the church is to be persistent and to persevere in her calling. Not dependent on the results, but in trust to the God who calls her to be faithful. Bold persistence. Preaching and confessing the truth in the midst of this world. 
even as that world rages and gnashes its teeth, the truth about marriage, the truth about gender, the truth about human sexuality, the truth about where man came from, not evolution, but creation, all of those truths maintain and preach boldly, persistently. Let us not shrink, give up, or be quiet. For office bearers, persistence in that pastoral work which is hard and sometimes doesn't show quick results Let us not lose heart, but in love for God and the sheep we minister to, persist and persevere. Persistence and perseverance in evangelism, seeking to bring the good news to others that they may be drawn into the kingdom. Let's not give up when fruit doesn't show up quickly. We're called, first of all, to be faithful, more so than successful. Persistence in seeking the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness. That is the orientation of the whole Christian life. Our focus is not first of all getting into a bigger and better house here below. But our focus is the palace of the king. That's where our treasures are. And that's where our hearts should be also. And that leads to our third and final application. A wonderful comfort. We are like these weak, small lizards. Here's a big difference. These little animals, they get themselves into houses and into palaces. You and I can't get ourselves into The palace of the king. We need a savior. And that's Jesus Christ. In fact, there's another interesting aspect of our text here. The word kings in the text is translated as plural. But grammatically it is singular so that you could translate it the king's palace. And what was the king's palace? In Agur's day. Undoubtedly it was the palace of King Solomon. The wise king. The king of peace. The king who is a type of the prince of peace. The wisdom of God himself. Jesus Christ. And you see. That's how we get into the king's palace. Through the work of the prince of peace. Who for us weak, poor, impoverished. Sinners shed his precious blood to redeem us to himself, to catch us out of our sin, to catch us and take us to himself, and take us in his hands to his palace. We're bought by the precious blood of Christ. We are caught by his powerful gospel. We are held fast by his almighty spirit. And on the day of his return, we shall at last be brought into the palace. The palace, which is the new heavens and the new 
earth. We will be brought into it, not as an unwelcome pest like these lizards were in the palaces of kings, but as the bride of the king's son. Psalm 45 verse 15 describes our coming entrance into that palace. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. There to abide forever. So beloved, we live in this world as individual believers, as church. Let us be perseverant in the work of the Lord. Let our hearts and eyes be fixed on the palace of the king. Let us rest in the Christ who died for us. Gave us a place in his palace. And who shall soon come to take us there. To abide with us there forevermore. Amen. Our faithful God and heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the wisdom of this proverb and the beautiful truths that it sets before our eyes. Grant that at the conclusion of this short series, we may indeed have learned something of spiritual wisdom from the little creatures Thy hands have made. Grant that we may the more readily walk in wisdom's ways to the glory of thy name and in thankfulness to Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King, our Bridegroom. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.